Well, if you've got a Bible, make your way to Genesis chapter 21. We've been walking through a series in the book of Genesis, uh, and this morning we're in Genesis 21. If you don't have a Bible, uh, good news, we have one for you. Over there on that table, you can go grab it and keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. Uh, But Genesis 21, it really breaks down into three or four distinct scenes, and so rather than reading the whole thing at once, we'll just read it uh, kind of a scene and a section at a time uh, and talk through it and walk through it like that. And so let's look at these first seven verses in Genesis chapter 21 together, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Uh, Well, after all of the uh, buildup and anticipation that we've been walking through, really since chapter 12 for Abraham and Sarah, it's been 25 years for us. It's been the span of a couple months where we've been waiting on this promise to be fulfilled and building up and building up. After all of that wait, uh, this birth announcement seems a little bit kind of anticlimactic, right? Like you'd expect a little bit more drama and buildup. Like after 18 hours of labor, he was born at 10.02 p.m. and he had blue eyes and uh, this is when he took his first steps. And here's some pictures of him at his first birthday party, but we we don't get any of that. Uh, And I think that's intentional. I think the birth announcement of Isaac is anticlimactic because what Moses wants to do here is put the emphasis on God being faithful to keep his word. Like he said he would do it and he did it just as he had said just as he promised, at just the time he said he would do it. God is faithful. God is dependable. He always keeps his promises. He always comes through. He always fulfills his word. And so if he says he's going to do something, then it's as good as done. Like you take it to the bank. We have every reason to trust our God because God always comes through. He never fails to keep one of his promises. He always keeps his word. Now, For sure. He took an incredibly long time to fulfill this promise, 25 years, but once again, I think he was doing that on purpose. God was stripping every human resource that they could contribute to this promise away. He waited until it was an absolute human impossibility and then some, and then he did it anyway to show us that what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. I mean, think about this. We've talked about this before, but, but Abraham and Sarah would not have had the faith in God that they had developed in them over 25 long years uh, if this promise would have come right away. Like if, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. If God had come to Abraham and called him, and then nine months later, uh, Sarah was having a baby, that would be a cause to celebrate and be happy and joyful, but they would not have developed the faith and trust in God that they had after 25 long years of walking with him and waiting on him and trusting him through starts and stumbles and stops and falls to fulfill his promise. God was doing something in them, trying to deepen their faith in him as they walked with him. And listen, God wants to do the same thing for us. 
It's why the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac is in the Bible, and it's why the emphasis is being put here in this text on God's faithfulness to keep his word. Because this is how God grows and deepens our faith as we walk with him through his word. Because this is what the Bible is. The Bible is just story after story after story of God making promises and then turning around and keeping the promises that he just made. It's promises made and it's promises kept. And the more we get our eyes and our hearts on these promises made and kept, the more God deepens our faith in him as we walk with him. I love what David says about this in Psalm chapter 9. He says, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, do not forsake those who seek you. So in the Bible, someone's name refers to their character. And so David is saying, those who know your character, those who have seen your proven faithfulness, if you've just proven yourself true time and time again, more and more they begin to put their trust in you because more and more they begin to know that you do not forsake those who seek you. And so the more we get our eyes on the book and get our eyes on the promises of God, the more we will feel the same way and begin to experience that the faithfulness that God has shown in the past is the same faithfulness that he's going to show to us. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, the more we study the words of grace, the more grace will derive from the words. The more we'll get from the words because we're just feasting ourselves on God's promises. And so listen, if if like really there was just one thing that I could get across in in however long the Lord gives us together, it's this. Like read your Bible and get your eyes on Jesus and his love for you and we'll be all right. Like yeah, there are other things to do in the Christian life. There's other commands, but this is so foundational. If you get your eyes on the book and you get your eyes on Jesus in the book, those other things will come. Those other things will work out, but everything flows from this. I mean, think about it. Why do you think it's so hard for us to read our Bibles? Why is it that every time I sit down in the morning to read my Bible, I'm just tempted with the urge to do anything else on my phone, uh, even if it's just refreshing something that I've already refreshed 10 times? Like, why is it that if you want to wake up early to read your Bible, it's so easy to oversleep, and if you plan to read it at night, you're always too tired to focus or your kids won't go to bed? Why is it that it constantly just feels like an uphill battle and a slog and a war to do this? Well, it's because it is. Like, spiritual warfare is involved here because Satan knows that if you get yourself in the book and you saturate yourself with the promises of God and you just know the promises of God and his proven character, then you're going to have a faith that's untouchable. Like, he knows you're going to be unstoppable because every time you have an opportunity to trust God, you're going to say, why would I not trust him here? He always comes through. He's always faithful. And so listen, if I can encourage you, let me encourage you like this. I've used this before, but if you've ever been to the water park, surely you've seen that big bucket of water that will just fill up and fill up and fill up until eventually gravity takes over Uh, and it dumps out and spills the water underneath, kind of getting everybody that's under it wet. All right, so what are some things that are true about that water bucket? Well, one, you can't make it tip over by yourself, right? Like, the vast majority of the time, it's way too big, it's way too high up, and there's no button that you can press to make that water bucket tip over. So you can't make it tip over on your own, but if you're under the bucket when it tips over, what happens? Well, obviously, you get soaking wet, right? If, if you're not on the buck, under the bucket, on the other hand, when it tips over, what happens? Well, you're going to stay dry. And so, listen, here's the reality. 
you and I, we cannot make ourselves desire Jesus. We can't transform our hearts. We can't change ourselves. But here's what we can do. God promises to transform his people through the power of his spirit, working through the power of his word. And so reading the Bible is like getting under the bucket. Like, no, we can't make the bucket of water tip over, but we can position ourselves under it and get ourselves under it so that when God chooses to dump out his transforming grace and power in our lives, we're there to receive it. Listen, the level of our spiritual growth and the depth of our walk with Jesus just rises and falls based on how well we've engaged with him and how well we know him in his word and in prayer. And so if I could just encourage you, it's this, get under the bucket. Like, get in the book, get your eyes on Jesus in the book, and let God dump out the power of transforming grace and power in your life. Listen, if there's anything in this life that's worth giving our lives over to, it's being a person of this book. It's being a person who's deeply saturated with this book and just knows the promises of God and knows his proven character because you've so filled your life with this. And listen, if you don't read well and if you don't like to read, I actually don't think you're at a disadvantage here. Because I'll just tell you as someone who really does love to read that my constant temptation is to be a person of many other books to the neglect of this one. And so for all of us, it's a commitment and a discipline that we've got to say, no, I'm going to saturate my life with this book. I'm going to get in here and feast myself on the promises of God because God keeps his promises. He's faithful. And that's what we see in these first seven verses. We see the promise of God being fulfilled, uh, but unfortunately, things don't stay happy-clappy and hunky-dory for long. Uh, Immediately after this, we see the promise being threatened. And so look at this with me in verse 8. It says, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. And so uh, apparently during this day, the infant mortality rate was incredibly high. And so uh, once a child was weaned and they knew that they were going to survive, they would throw a big uh, feast like this and party like this. Uh, and they always took a little bit longer to wean. And so Isaac is probably three by this point, And Abraham's throwing him a, a kind of a big birthday party to celebrate God keeping his promises and God uh, fulfilling this and giving him uh, a baby boy. And, and so Abraham throws Isaac this big feast and party, and this makes Ishmael angry. And if you remember, Ishmael was born to Abraham when he was 86 years old, and so if Isaac is three, that means that Ishmael is probably 16 or 17 years old uh, by this point, and so he's a teenager, and he sees this great feast. He knows what's going on. He knows that he's being demoted in the household, that Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the favored child, uh, and so he gets angry about this, and the text tells us that Sarah sees him uh, laughing with Isaac. If you've got an English Standard Version, look down at the footnote. It says, possibly laughing in mockery, and I think that's the sense of what's going on here. 
Basically, what seems to be going on is that Isaac is being a punk, Ishmael is being a punk teenager, uh, punking on this little boy Isaac at his birthday party, mocking him, maligning him, making fun of him, belittling him, potentially even harassing him. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he was persecuting Isaac. Uh, and so Sarah sees this, and obviously as a mom, she's not going to stand for this. And so she goes to Abraham, and she says, Hagar and Ishmael have to go now. Uh, and she's not real nice about it either. In chapter 16, Hagar was referred to as the maidservant. Now Sarah calls her the slave woman, uh, and she does not even refer to Hagar or Ishmael by their names. Now, this, of course, makes Abraham incredibly sad. This tears him up because he loves Ishmael. He loves this boy uh, that he had through Hagar. I mean, if you remember in chapter 17, when God came to Abraham and said, about this time next year, I'm fulfilling the promise, I'm bringing you a son, he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, that he might be the child of the promise. Like, Abraham loves this boy, and yet he's having to endure this incredibly messy situation. Like, this is an incredibly messy situation And the reality is that they could have avoided all of this had they just trusted God. You see, the Bible does not hide the consequences of our sin from us. We're going to see just horrific family dysfunction on display throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, and it's all a direct result of God's people not trusting Him. Because Abraham and Sarah did not trust God. They did not wait on the promise. They took matters into their own hands with Hagar, and it brought all of this suffering and pain. Like, Abraham is probably never again going to get to see Ishmael, this son that he loves. And it all happened, this whole thing could have been avoided if they would simply have trusted God and not taken matters into their own hands. But now you've got Abraham and his wife Sarah with their son, uh, and then Abraham and his girlfriend with his son that he had with her, all living under the same roof, uh, which, let's just be honest, not an ideal living situation, right? Like that not what you want. There's some fire for combustion there. That, like, that's just some fuel that's about to light up. And so obviously, uh, things can't stay this way. Something has to change. Uh, and so Sarah says that they've got to go and got to get rid of them. And, and listen, I actually don't think Sarah is being too crazy here. Because listen, she's waited decades for this promised son to be born. Uh, and if you remember way back when, at the beginning of the Bible, what happens with the very first brothers in the Bible? Cain, the older brother, kills his younger brother Abel. And so it it doesn't seem like it's too much of a stretch to say that Sarah knows this, and she sees Ishmael doing this, and she thinks, oh my gosh, he's a punk teenager. He's jealous about this. If we don't put a stop to this, he's about to do something that we can't fix and we can't take back uh, unless they separate. And so she calls for this separation. And listen, I don't know if she's in the right or if she's wrong. Uh, What I do know is this is an incredibly messy situation. But the good news is that as messy and as sin-filled as this situation is, we see the truth of Genesis 50 being put on display here, which is that what human beings meant for evil, God meant for good, and God's going to bring good out of an incredibly messy situation. And so he tells Abraham to listen to the voice of his wife, Sarah, because Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the one that blessing and salvation is going to be coming through because he's not the child of the flesh. But then he doesn't just do that. God also promises that he's going to be good to Ishmael on account of Abraham because he's Abraham's son. He's going to protect him and provide for him and make a great nation of him also. And that's exactly what we see him doing next uh, in the next part of the text, him protecting Ishmael. Pick back up in verse 14. 
It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so even though Abraham is now unable to protect Hagar and Ishmael, now that they don't live under his roof anymore, that doesn't mean that God is unable. Like God graciously protects and provides for Hagar and Ishmael. He keeps Ishmael alive even though Ishmael isn't the promised son, even though the covenant and grace is not coming through Ishmael. God graciously does this on account of Abraham. And so we see this, and then at the end of the chapter, we get this really weird story that seems disconnected at first read, but I actually think it fits here and shows us something really important. And so look at verse 22 with me at the promise still to come. It says, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who's done this thing. You didn't tell me, and I haven't heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well." Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So our boy Abimelech uh, makes a return appearance here, and uh, he wants to make a covenant with Abraham. He knows that God is with Abraham, and so they make a covenant together that they will dwell peacefully with each other together in the land. But then uh, a conflict arises as some of Abimelech's servants take one of the wells that Abraham had dug. And look, this is a big deal because this is a desert climate. Water is a precious commodity, and so this is a big deal for them to do this. And, and it seems like they just kind of out of nowhere, like Abraham went somewhere for a few days and they came back, uh, and it would be like if you had did that and then come back and somebody had moved your fence over and given you like this much of a backyard, and then all of a sudden they have this much of a backyard because they took all of your backyard. 
right? Like he, they moved the boundaries over to make it look like this was their well. And so Abraham comes to Abimelech and he's like, what's going on here? Like we made a covenant. We had an agreement that you're not going to do stuff like this and be shady. Uh, and Abimelech's like, hey, I didn't know about this. I didn't tell anybody to do this. I, this is the first time I'm hearing about this, which I find a little bit hard to believe because Abimelech is a king, right? Kings have control of their servants and of everything. Like he either had to command them to do this or he knew that they were doing it and he was okay with it. Uh, I don't mean to hate on Tom Brady here. I really don't want to. He is the best. Uh, but it's kind of like what happened with Deflategate a few years ago. Do you remember what happened here? Uh, if you're not familiar, basically what happened is that the Patriots got caught cheating. Uh, let's just call it what it is. They got caught cheating by deflating the footballs uh, so that they weren't inflated to the league standards uh, in a playoff game, basically to give Tom Brady an advantage in a cold-weather game so that he could hold on to the football better uh, as he was throwing it. And once it came out and they got caught in all of this, uh, everybody in the Patriots organization denied that Tom Brady had any knowledge of this. They just said that some trainers just chose to do this. Now, uh, like, I, I'll just be honest, I find it really hard to believe that Tom Brady, who is famously OCD about his practice schedule and his eating habits and his sleep schedule and his routines and everything else, and he had more control than like anybody else in that organization, especially over the footballs that he was going to throw in the game, like I, I really find it hard to believe that he didn't have any knowledge of this, right? Like he either told the trainers to do it or he knew that they were doing it and he was okay with it, but he definitely didn't know that nothing was going on. Right, like he knew all about this, and the same thing is going on with Abimelech here. And so you've got this conflict that Abimelech starts up with Abraham, and so Abraham's got to figure all of this out, and so he decides to make another covenant to basically get it in writing that this is his well. And so they do this, and Abimelech and Phicol go home, and then Abraham does something interesting. He plants a tamarisk tree here, and he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, you're going to be really proud of me. Uh, I Googled what a tamarisk tree is. Uh, actually, that's not true. Josh Googled what a tamarisk tree is, and he sent it to me. Uh, and so I looked it up. I looked at it, and here's what I learned. A tamarisk tree uh, is an evergreen tree that survives really well in a desert climate like this. And so Abraham plants this long-lasting evergreen tree, and it's interesting that he calls specifically on the name of the Lord, and he calls him the everlasting God, El Olam. Now, now, here's what I think is going on here. At the beginning of this chapter, we see the promise being fulfilled to Abraham as he is finally given this son that was promised so long ago. But immediately after it happens, the promise is threatened. Conflict happens between Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. Uh, and then that's not the only thing that God promised to Abraham, right? God also promised that he and his offspring would inherit and possess this land but Abraham doesn't have the land yet, right? Like he's not living out the end of his days as a king on his front porch in a nice house, sipping coffee, just kind of ruling over the land in peace. No, he's having all these conflicts with Abimelech. He's got to figure all this stuff out. And if you notice verse 34, it says that Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. A sojourner means that you don't own it. You're a visitor. You don't belong there. It's not your home. You're a foreigner uh, and so Abraham knows that, that, he, that this is not home and that there are aspects of this promise that are still yet to be fulfilled. 
So there are aspects that are still to be fulfilled, and I think Abraham knows this, and he believes this, and he expresses a deep faith in God here by planting this tamarisk tree. Because trees don't spring up overnight, right? Like this tree is going to be there long after Abraham is gone. And so when Abraham plants this tree, I think basically what he's saying, he's saying, God, I am not everlasting. I'm not going to be here forever, but you are everlasting. And I trust that even if I never see the fulfillment of this promise in my lifetime, if I never own and possess the land, I trust that you will cause my kids and my grandkids, they will worship you in this land. You will fulfill the promise you made to them and keep it. And so I'm planting this tree in faith that even if my eyes don't see it, my offspring's eyes will see it. You will be faithful to keep this promise just like you were faithful to the promise with Isaac. I mean, this is what Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16 says about Abraham, uh, talking about him. Listen to what it says. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." And so Abraham knows that in a real sense, the best is yet to come, that God is not done fulfilling his promises, even though he might not get to see the fulfillment of this in his life. Like this is deep growth in faith on the part of Abraham. We really don't see the stumbles and faithlessness and foolishness that we've seen so often before in his life. Like we don't see that from this point on. Like something changes here. And listen, this is a word for us as well, because our story is going to be the same as Abraham's. Like, yeah, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, but that does not mean that we experience the fullness of what has been promised for us and what has been purchased for us by Jesus. I'll just give you an example. Like, Jesus has saved us completely, and he will keep us to the end But that doesn't mean that we've arrived to the fullness of what he saved us for. New heavens and a new earth, free from sin and the curse, where we will see his face and know him and walk with him in perfection. We are not there yet. And so we should look forward in faith, trusting that God will be faithful to keep his promises, that the best is yet to come, and that even if we don't see the fulfillment of it in this life, that's okay, because we were made for more than just this life. Like, the reason we can't ever find ultimate satisfaction in this life is because we were made for more than just this life. And so just like Abraham, we should have a faith that looks forward, a hope and a trust that knows that God, the God who has been with us every step of the way will not quit on us. He will bring us to the end of these promises, and he will bring us to himself because he's faithful. He is the everlasting God. And so what I want to do with all of this is I want to do some work now summing up this entire chapter and showing how it points us to the good news of the gospel. And so let's do some work here. We, when we were first introduced to Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis chapter 16, uh, we talked about how Paul in Galatians 4 uh, told, tells us that we can interpret the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac allegorically. 
Uh, and listen, I don't know what you've heard about that word. It's not a bad word. It's not a scary word. It's a good word. It's a Bible word. And uh, what it means is that these events really happened, and they have real historical meaning and significance. But beyond that, they also speak beyond themselves and testify to a deeper spiritual reality that we can see once Jesus has come. They point to gospel realities and gospel truths. And so what Paul says in Galatians 4 about this, about this story, he says that these two mothers and two sons represent the difference between what we can do in the flesh, what we can do in our own strength, and what God does all by himself, by the promise, and by grace. And we can see this in Genesis itself, right? Like, Abraham sleeping with Hagar represents what we can do in our own strength. She is young. She is fertile. It took no miracle for that to happen and for her to have a child. But Sarah, on the other hand, old, barren, way past menopause, like it is clear that God completely did that by himself, all by his grace, all alone. And what Paul tells us is that we, everyone who believes in Jesus, is a child of the promise just like Isaac. That our salvation is just as miraculous as the birth of Isaac, just as much a work of God alone to give us life. But the problem that Paul highlights for us in this allegory and really all throughout the rest of Galatians is that all of us are so prone to believe that the promise gets us in the door, and so we believe that we are initially saved by God's grace, uh, but then we all face the temptation constantly to shift back into performance mode and believe that we grow by works. And so we believe that we grow by trying really hard to do good things and trying really hard to stop doing bad things and trying to change our behavior, that we start off as children of the promise, but then the way that we grow is by becoming children of the flesh and getting after it and trying really hard in our own strength to keep God's affection. But listen, that would be like stapling apples to the branches of an apple tree and saying that you have a flourishing apple tree. Like you don't because you haven't ever actually gotten to the source of where the life and the flourishing is coming from, right? Growth in the Christian life is inside out. It's not outside in. We do not change just by trying to focus on our behavior. Listen, this is so key. You've got to understand this. We, do not, we are not just saved by faith in the promise. We grow by faith in the promise. We are children of the promise our entire lives. This is how we grow, and this is what we do. Growth is inside out. It's not outside in. And and really what Paul is seeing in this story here in Genesis uh, really gets us to the fundamentals of how we change and how we grow. Because look, all of us in our sinful nature uh, are just constantly tempted to believe that God's affection for us and our standing with him just rises and falls every day based on how well we're doing, based on how well we're performing for him. And, and so we believe this, and when we believe this, when we believe that we're saved by grace, yet we keep ourselves by works and that we change when we really knuckle down and try really hard, if you believe that and you start practicing that, your life is going to be a roller coaster. Because look, you're going to be really up and happy when you feel like you're doing good enough and God is pleased with you, and then you're going to be really down in the dumps when you feel like you're not doing enough and you're on the verge of losing your status in the household. You're always going to feel insecure about this. I mean, think of how unstable Ishmael's position in this household was. He did one wrong thing and he was gone. 
And this is what Paul says. This is how Paul says we are going to feel when we try to relate to God based on our performance and keep our standing with him based on how well we are doing. And listen, I understand, like, it is so hard when you think about it. It is so difficult to believe that our standing with God is just completely dependent on his grace, that there's nothing that we can do to earn it or to keep it or to manage it, because all of us want to be able to point to something in our lives and say, I know I'm right with God and I know I'm secure with him because I read my Bible consistently, or because I give my money, or because I go to church. Like, we want to have something of our own to fall back on for security, but that's a recipe for disaster. Because you feeling like you can just help God out a little bit to give yourself more security and make yourself more of a son or a daughter is going to make you radically insecure about whether or not you actually are doing enough to keep that. I'm paraphrasing Dane Ortland here, but you trying to seal the deal with God with a little bit of your own performance is going to create extreme uneasiness in you about whether or not the deal is actually ever sealed, whether or not you've actually done enough to have security and stability in the household. And so look, I know we've been hammering this, but we've been hammering it because it's so foundational. What God wants to do is to convince us of the settled reality of our identity in Him, that he saw us at our worst, not at our best, at our worst, and at our worst, he said, yeah, I love him. I love her. I want him. I want her on my team. That he justified us. He counted us righteous, not when we were good, when we were ungodly. He wants to convince us that his love for us and his approval of us and his delight in us is a set-in-stone fact that we live out of. It's not, it's something that we live from. It's not something that we live for. Because when we profess, if we profess with our mouths that we are sons and daughters of God, but actually believe in our hearts that we are his employees and slaves that have to earn our keep, then all we're going to do is just settle for trying to be better at keeping God's commands so that we can be a better employee or slave. And look, that's completely backwards. I first heard this, uh, read this from Jared Wilson a few years ago in a book I was reading. He was talking about preaching, uh, and he was basically making the point. He said, if you give your people uh, two kind of moral behavioral application points each week, and so if we were to do this, Jacob and I, each week, get up here and say two things. Okay, so this week I want you to go home and stop doing this and then start doing this, and then you come back next week and we say, okay, I want you to go home and start doing this and start doing this, And then you come back the next week and I say, okay, I want you to go home and stop doing this and stop doing that Uh, 52 Sundays a year. So with just two of those, that's 104 things in a year that we are telling you that you've got to start and stop doing. That's exhausting. Who can do that? Even if you take notes, you're not even going to be able to remember all 104 of those things. That's exhausting and it's not how we change. Look, and I'm not saying in this that the commands of God are bad. They're not. They're good. What I'm saying is that the commands are only ever train tracks that can tell us and show us where to go that can never be the fuel for the engine that makes the train actually run. Like commands can tell us what we are supposed to do, but they can't actually give us the desire to do it. We need something deeper than that. We need something that is more powerful than that. We need the love of God in our hearts that creates love for him because, look, that produces deeper and more lasting change than just working on your behavior ever will. 
Because look, if you are satisfied in Jesus and his grace towards you and his love for you is the deepest reality in your heart, man, then you'll be freed up from putting your family into debt because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses or you think that this next vacation or this next purchase will finally be the thing that satisfies you, will finally be the thing that fixes your family's issues, that will finally be the thing that makes you feel like you're okay. If your identity in Jesus and his delight and approval over your life is the most real reality in your heart, and then you'll stop neglecting your family because you're trying to make work into your idol that gives you an identity. You'll stop wreaking relational havoc on people because you're using them to get an identity for yourself. When you know in your guts that Jesus has borne all of your shame and guilt on the cross and has paid for it all and has taken it away completely, when that becomes real to your heart, and more and more, you won't keep turning to pornography as an escape to numb your pain and soothe the shame and the guilt and insecurity you feel about yourself. Like, love for Jesus and delight in Jesus produces a more lasting change that behavioral modification never could. We are not just saved by faith in the promise, we grow by faith in the promise. We are children of the promise our entire lives. We never move on but from this. We walk by faith. We grow as we fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on Jesus. And so what I want us to do for just a few minutes is to do just that, to sum this up and show how this story points us to Jesus, so that we might just spend a few minutes uh, feeding on him in faith and might uh, enjoy him together for a few moments. And so in Genesis 18, when God came to Sarah and told her that next year they would be having this son she laughed in God's face. She didn't believe it. Uh, and she said, basically, that's not going to happen. I'm way too old. God can't do that. And, and when God heard her laughing, he asked Abraham, why is she laughing? Is anything too hard for me? Like, I'm going to come back next year, and I'm going to prove it to you. And he just did. He just did. And we talked about when we were in Genesis 18, how this points us to the incarnation of Jesus, that when God would take on flesh and be born, uh, not just of a barren woman, but of a virgin who had never known a man. That in the fullness of time, the same God that created the world out of nothing, that gave life to Sarah's dead womb and brought Isaac into the world, that same God would humble himself, step into human history, take on our humanity and be born of a virgin because nothing is too hard for the Lord. And, And so we talked about how it points us forward to the incarnation, but this story doesn't just point us forward to the incarnation, it also points us forward to the resurrection. Proverbs 30 compares three things to death and the grave. A fire that never says enough, a, a, bar- a dry land that can never get enough water to satisfy it, and a barren womb. Proverbs is saying that these three things are all symbols of death and the curse of death that has been unleashed on our world. And so when God brings life to a barren womb, he is reversing the curse of death and showing that he is stronger than death. He is, in a real sense, performing a resurrection and showing that he has the power over death and the grave, that he has the power of life that is stronger than death. This is what Romans 4 says. Paul says that Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He does this. Abraham had faith in the God that can bring life out of nothing and can bring life out of death. And so this is, God's preparing us here in Genesis 21 for the resurrection so that we would know that when things are at their darkest, that when things look their most hopeless, 
that God can reverse the situation, that God can bring light where there is only darkness, that God can bring life when there is only death. And I think there's something else in this passage that points us to this reality, and it's the name of the boy Isaac. God tells Abraham and Sarah to name this son Isaac, which means he laughs or laughter. Uh, and, and Sarah says, God's made laughter for me, a laughter of joy. Everyone who hears about this is going to laugh over me and laugh with me saying, oh my gosh, who would have thought that she would have given birth to a son in her old age and in Abraham's old age? But yet here he is. Can you believe it? That God did this. He performed a resurrection uh, in Sarah's life. And do you realize what just happened here as God did this? God just turned the source of Sarah's greatest sin and shame into a cause and a reason to celebrate and rejoice at his grace. God just redeemed and reversed uh, her laughter. Like when she heard about this promise, she laughed in God's face. She laughed in God's face and she did not believe him. And yet God reversed this and brought her the laughter of joy. He totally redeemed this situation. And so now, every time somebody asks Sarah about Isaac's name, she gets to preach the gospel to them. She gets to say, yeah, I didn't believe. I laughed in God's face. I came up with this plan to, Hagar, to uh, pass Abraham off to Hagar. Like, I didn't believe, and yet God still did this for me. He still brought this promise to pass. I was 90 years old. I was way past menopause. This never should have happened, but yet God did it because he's an incredibly gracious God. Can you believe this? Like Sarah was given a resurrection and God reversed and redeemed the darkest parts of her story because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Listen, we are resurrection people. We believe that nothing is too hard for the Lord and that he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. It is not too hard for him to take the source of your deepest sin and shame and redeem it into a source of celebration and rejoicing about how his grace redeems it. Because look, we have the same testimony as Sarah. Who would believe that God would do this for me? But he did. Who would believe that God would save me? But he has. Who would believe that I would be called a child of God? But I am. Like, this is what we receive. This is what we are given. It's not too hard for him to do this. And so God can take the source of your deepest shame and sin and turn it to a testimony of God's grace that you can give to others about how he can overcome and he can forgive and he can redeem and he can transform and he can make all things new in your life. Like the things that you are most ashamed of in your life right now, your sin and your shame can come, become a vehicle to testify to the grace of God to others because he is the God who gives life to the dead. He's the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is the God who gives life where there is only death and makes all things new in our lives. Jesus is the God who went to the grave and died and took our sins into the grave with him, but then he got up from the grave, left our sins there, and took us with him so that we could only know the joy of resurrection life and laughter. Like, listen, it is not too hard. Like, your life is not so bad that God can't redeem it. Your sin is not so dark that Jesus cannot forgive it. And you have not run so far that Jesus couldn't transform and turn around your life in an instant. This is what he loves to do. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We're resurrection people. 
We believe Jesus got up from the dead, which means that when things look like they're at their darkest and most hopeless, that that's when Jesus does his best work. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, the reality is that the same power that created the world out of nothing, the same power that gave life to Sarah's dead womb and brought Isaac into the world, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit of power now lives inside of you to transform you and give you resurrection life and make all things new in your life and give you the laughter of salvation's joy. As as the Spirit pours out the love of God in your heart so that you would be able to say, and God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears about this is going to laugh with me. Who would believe that God would make me one of his children? But yet I am. This is incredible, incredible grace. And look to Jesus. Get your eyes on the promises made and kept And the Spirit, more and more, will give you the joy of salvation. I promise you that He will. This is a promise that God loves to fulfill. Let's pray together that He would. Jesus, thank You for the good news of the gospel we see in this passage, that the birth of Isaac points us forward, yes, to Your power, not just to bring a son into the world through a barren woman, but to be the son who would come into the world through a virgin who had never even known a man. God, nothing is too hard for you. And thank you that it points beyond this to your resurrection and the fact that you're so powerful that you can make all things new, that you can undo and reverse and turn around even the darkest aspects of our lives, that you can bring the joy of salvation's laughter into our lives when all we've ever done is rebel against you, when all we have ever done is just like Sarah, laugh in your face and not believe you you still give us salvation's joy. And so would we rejoice in that? Would we trust in that? And and God, I pray you'd be moving in hearts even now to do that. That There's men and women in this room who have not put their faith in you, that today they would come, that they would see your resurrection power to make all things new in their life, and they would believe and you would save them. Jesus, do so even in this moment. I pray that you would in your name. Amen.